Hello and welcome to what may or may not be the 200th episode of Trap One. Honestly, Trap One numbering is just as confusing as unit dating, which is probably appropriate in some kind of way. So today we're the podcast that asks, can the division be defeated by unit E? <laughs> Hello, I'm Sai, and I'm here with a random group of wonderful people on the naughty step. It's who have we got here? Uh, Bryn Mitchell. Hi, I'm Fraser Gregory, and I'm Pete Lambert. So we're here to discuss Doctor Who and the Flux and the Vanquishers, episode six of series twelve of Doctor Who. That's quite a mouthful. <laughs> and um, so thirteen. Yeah, thirteen. I have no idea where I am. <laughs> <laughs> Just ignore me. I'm just here to make these others look good. <laughs> well, there's those Matt Smith seasons that were sort of A's and B's as well, so maybe, yeah, oh. who knows? <laughs> this is what happens when time runs amok. Exactly. Amok is the one thing you don't want time to run, isn't it? <laughs> it never leads to good things. Well, time is playing games with us all. As we found out in episodes one to five of the flux, see what I've done there. I've got a good link there. So, um, so Pete, how have you found flux one to five? I know you've been on already to discuss episode two, was it? That's right. Yeah. Um, also, all the, it's all been about Santarans for me this year, Doctor Who. Um, yeah, it's it's not the version of Doctor. If you'd asked me three years ago what do I want Doctor Who to be like, I would not have given you a list of all these ingredients and crammed it all into six episodes. But you know what? I've buckled up for the ride and I've really enjoyed it. And uh, it's had a couple of big blockbuster episodes and a couple of trippy ones. And like every season of Doctor Who, there's some episodes that knock my socks off and others that haven't quite. But yeah, I've got my I've had my money's worth this year. Yeah, how about you, Bryn? Yeah, I've I've really gotten into it. Um, I've you know had mixed thoughts throughout the series, but on the whole, I think for me, this certainly felt like the most consistent of Chibnall series. You know, maybe not quite as high highs, but definitely not as low lows. And um, I think the first episode didn't instantly grab me. I felt like a lot of the elements were just so like one or two scenes, but then. When the second episode came on, I really I was vibing with a sense of humour in a way I don't think I have with the Chibnall era previously. And so as it went on, I've really enjoyed how this series has developed. And I've been I've been having a good time with it, despite having some mixed thoughts. And what about you, Mr. Gregory? Um, well, I, you know, very much agree with what Bryn said there. It's been the most consistent Chibnall series for me so far. I would say it's been consistently good, though. I haven't had a, a poor moment in it. Um, you know, I'll disagree with Ben on that from the Halloween apocalypse, you know, that came out of the traps and grabbed me and I fell in love with Flux from that episode. I just loved what Chibnall was doing with the sort of the overall arc of the story that, yes, there were scenes in there that weren't going to pay off in that episode and they weren't going to pay off in episode two, not even three, but in four and five. Um that's what I loved about that episode and I think it has just been it's been fantastic it's been easily for me the most enjoyable series of Doctor Who I've watched probably since series five um if not before that certainly the new era it's it's just been fantastic yeah I think what's taken me by surprise was I thought it would be far more linear than it has been and I wasn't expecting all the um all the characters to be set up in episode one 
and then to gradually find out what's going on sort of seeded all the way through the series that's been um i don't know whether that is a because the series has been truncated because of the covid um situation and sort of was sort of forced as rewrites but i think that's worked really well and i know um a lot of people worry about what the general public are doing and how they're coping with following all these things but they forget a lot of them have watched 25 30 years of eastenders and can remember who michelle fowler is who hasn't been in the show for for five years or whatever so i yeah. think i think we don't give as fans the general public enough of a a free pass on this so they can follow all of game of thrones and you'd get things that are re- referenced right back to to year one at the end so yeah i i think this was a really good way to go i think it's worked really well for doctor who yeah, I mean, in terms of that serialised element, I really think one of the highlights this year has been getting these amazing guest characters played by such charismatic actors that we actually get to stay with for more than one week. You know, for me, um, Carvinista, Vinda, Bell, and Jericho in the latter half of the series have been real highlights just because they give off such energy and enthusiasm in their performances. And, you know, if those characters only appeared in one episode i you know i'm sure we'd enjoy them for that week but they probably wouldn't be remembered in the same light and i think it's been nice to be able to spend that kind of time with characters like that yeah you're dead right that's something i've missed about modern who you know all 21st century who even even when the longest we've generally got has been a two-parter once in a while you just don't get that feeling of getting to know these characters over the weeks and seeing them react and learn and and and, you know when someone's in it for three or four weeks they can have grown as a person through that time a a bit obviously it's not going into massive character studies or anything but you know yeah you get you get a chance to see them uh reacting to things and and you get to to know them a bit more and, and then you get more invested in them yeah yeah. yeah, I think Jericho is my. What's everyone's favourite out of that? Like, it's hard to choose, but I would, I would go with Jericho. Jericho has been mine as well, Pete. Yeah. I really wasn't expecting us to get Kevin McAnally for more than one one episode, so it was a real shock when he didn't die, and then he turned up next week, and he was there, teamed up with Yaz and Dan, and he's just been an absolute joy all year. Yeah, I mean, it is hard to pick. I think. For me, probably my favourite would probably be Belle. I think, I think she probably gets slightly less to do than um, Jericho, and yet I just find her performance and her enthusiasm, and it comes across so well. And even looking at the actor um, Fadia Graham's like social media, it was really endearing just to see how happy and how positive an experience she had doing the show. So that kind of comes across on screen, I think. Yeah, um, I would say Carvinista for me, um, possibly. I think. You know, in the run-up to... Terry and Northern. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's my type. Um, <laughs> no, I think I think that really did work, though, because, you know, in the run-up to the... We had the publicity shots of Carbonista in the run-up, um, you know, we're having a, a dog man there, and, you know, it would have been really obvious to kind of play him as a bit of a sort of um, regal, you know, Shakespearean-type character... Um, like full of nobility and and whatnot, but you know, as soon as he came out with like a northern accent, and that was just that just really, it was it wasn't what I was expecting, but it worked so much better because of it. And yet, you say the fact that he wasn't just in the first episode, but we've had appearances of him 
all the way throughout um is is really worked as well but i think if i had to pick one favorite cat out of the whole of flux it would have to be the guru in nepal <laughs> that two minutes you're teasing <laughs> us you <laughs> <laughs> see the actor's tweet that uh, he was just it was, it's amazing that two minutes of screen time could have such an impact and he's, he's absolutely yeah. delighted it was yeah. just such an excellent performance he he owned those two minutes of screen time like and you know pretty much all this year for doctor who i've had somebody with me while i've been watching it and you know when we were watching that we both were just looking at each other and just laughing it's just such a great man it was something you know that happens probably about halfway through the episode and by the end of the episode when we were having that what did you think about the episode conversation he was still the first thing we mentioned yeah um, yeah and, it, and i think he really it was a really nice counterbalance in in that episode that was so mind-blowing and you got your giant flying gods and everything and then having him and being um very sort of really relatable and a modern sense of humor kind of character quite inco really incongruous within in the style of that episode made it work perfectly because he's just a really nice just really stands out yeah it sort of speaks to another part of flux which i've really enjoyed which is the the quality of the writing um i think having a serialized stories really played the chris jibnall's strengths he's brought these kind of broad church um, skills that he honed on Broadchurch to Doctor Who and he's told us a story across multiple episodes. There's been red herrings in there, there's been characters that we've expected to do things but haven't. Um, you know, the ending hasn't been what we've wanted, expected it to be. There's been twists and turns along the way but the, the humour um, throughout has been has been unbelievable. It's, it's is, where's, where's this Chris Jibnall been at times, you know? <laughs> yeah. Where, why have we not had this this sort of funny dialogue and scenes and characters in the past. Well, exactly. It it feels like it's really landed this year, doesn't it? Yeah, I yeah. think he's found um, a really good way to use the plot and characters to support his sense of humour. Because I think Chibnall's style of humour in writing can be quite blunt and quite jokey. And I think particularly just when I was watching the second episode, I realised how well that suited the Santarans. I think that was the moment where I really got, you know, because I... I his, you know, compared to the sort of style of humour we've had in previous series of Modern Doctor Who, it is, it's not quite as sort of quick-witted or snappy, and yet the jokes land in a different way, and, and it, it's really, I think he's found the best way to do that this year, and it's come across very well with certain characters and the Santarans, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's just basically peak Jimnall, and for a lot of people don't like Jimnall's style of writing, so it's just not going to work. If you, if that's not what you like, and, and there's plenty of people out there of that Ben, and but I'm I'm much more sort of, I guess fairly I don't know chip neutral, um, but in this one <laughs> is that a thing I could start that. Yeah, um, I, but... I describe myself as a chip agnostic. I love the like um and could contrast with the Wi-Fi joke in in the, uh, <laughs> the, the which just there was room for a really funny joke there and so and it worked for some people but for me it just it wasn't it didn't hit at all to the extent that it, it mishit so badly that that was also almost funny in itself yeah it became a bit of a, a <laughs> yeah. meme just by being yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, but like you said, the Santarans uh, in this were just—it it was brilliant to have them balanced as being ridiculous and 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 stupid and funny, 
and pompous and also deadly and dangerous. And the fact mm. that it flipped backwards and forwards between the two, and I think got, got away with it. I think full credit to the directors and especially to the um, to the two actors, to uh, Jonathan Watson and as the uh, as the various supreme commanders stank isn't stank, stank. <laughs> is that a joke about links is it like a, a deodorant joke i don't know but yeah stank and uh, and he was called sen starg um it was called this week but and, and hooray for um for robert holmes having the extremely economic idea of them being clones and also very um very very covid proof as well it helps yeah. that you only need to have two actors in the makeup it, it, at any one time funny to think that he invented the idea of them being clones in a story where there's only one of them. So it obviously wasn't a practical <laughs> consideration for casting. And yet it's worked out all these years later. Um, really handy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And the um, the chocolate um, scene, chocolate! which is the, the full, full on, full on, <laughs> let's have a comedy moment here. And and in the middle of a, a such a frantic episode, because I remember some, um, some people uh, didn't, there was debate about going back to the first, I can't get the names the right way around the first Dalek special of the Chibnall era, where um, there's the there's the in the middle of the action it pauses for that really intense scene between Ryan and his dad, mm. like here's a tone shift scene and it I liked it but I said some people felt it was too abrupt to change of tone, but I felt in in this story this was sort of similar and completely different tones but a similar change of gear from from being the frantic action thing to suddenly we're having this comedy scene in a in a corner shop with a chocoholic Santar and yeah and it, and it just it worked this time for me it yeah. really worked. See, it really I I've bad. always liked that Ryan and his dad scene and I think that is one of those ones where even among circles where we're all kind of being quite critical of Chibnall, I'll stick up for that specific scene, even while cr agreeing with people on other things. Hmm. And yeah, I'm perfectly happy for Doctor Who to do that, that tone shifting. And I think I, it's been nice for Sense of Humour this year. And as you say, there are scenes like that chocolate scene. And also I think like the scene we're talking about in the previous episode with the um, person for telling um, stuff, where it kind of does feel like this is a comedy scene now for that scene. And I can see a sort of criticism of that, but I think the tone overall has been comedic enough that it's not like complete whiplash. It's not like those are the only bits of comedy. They're just a bit more concentrated in those scenes. And yeah. I, I've liked having Chibnall be more funny with it because um, like two of my favourite Matt Smith episodes are Dinosaurs on a Spaceship and The Power of Three. And both of them are very funny in places, like very um, funny. And um, it's been nice to see Chibnall kind of do that again i think his sense of humor has changed a lot it doesn't feel like the same style of humor but it does feel like those are like episodes i would laugh out loud at and so have been quite a few this year yeah yeah i think um just me being me i think the the humor with the Santarans didn't quite land for me um and i think one of the reasons for that is unfortunately dan starkey playing those roles because it's a common criticism of the Stephen Moffat era that Stephen Moffat ruined the Santarans by making them comedy. Um, he brought in Strax, and Strax was just mm. there as a purely comedy mm. character. Dan Starkey coming back in the Chibnall era was brilliant, but I would have just loved to, to have played the opposite role. You know, um, swap them over, have him as the commanding Santaran, and have the other one, because, you know, as soon as in you know, War of the Santarans, as soon as he's storming out of that hospital, shouting about human scum, it's it's Strax again. It just took me out of that story that little bit. 
in right that's what you mean yeah. Yeah. you know it was just kind of it, for me it was just over that line so it was okay but I, yeah. yeah it was so it worked yeah and, and i can definitely see what you mean because i think yeah. the whole thing with strax is i think there's a really good element of strax's character which is that in the previous appearance of Santarans in modern doctor who the Santarans weren't really characters in the way that they had yeah. been in those first couple of classic stories and i, I mm -hmm. like that moffat brought that back and made him you know a sort of sympathetic character and yet obviously some of the humor can be quite repetitive and i guess juvenile not that that's that fits very well with the Santarans, but obviously it, if it is over egged it can get you know and it was interesting to see how chibnall balanced that here when he was doing serious for Santarans of the villains of this story at the same time whereas obviously in the moffat era it was very much not doing Santarans as villains at the same time as trying to do yeah. the Santaran comedy. Yeah, yeah, going from the joke to them actually then committing genocide oh. of all yes. but one of the of, of the Lupari oh. and and the music and um uh the music second Akinola's music is always great. But I think this year it's just the, the way that he's blended his own his his own style of very rhythmic soundscapey music with proper triumphant orchestral widescreen stuff. Uh, action movie stuff has, that he's been also playing with throughout the years. I, I just think it's all come really come to a, a, a new high point for his music with, uh, with with Flux for me. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I I put a big note at the bottom of the thing. Say something great about Second Akinola <laughs> because he's just been been fantastic. He has kept the pace all the way through this. Um, the thing that I really liked was um, the little motif for the fob watch where it's a bit of an echo of Murray Gold's Time Lord theme from um, Series 1, with just yeah. a little bit of choral music. And I just thought that was just really magical and really yeah. a nice hark back to what we've had before, but yeah. doing it in a slightly different way. It, it was a really nice touch in the way it kind of almost combined, you know, Murray and Sagan's sort of styles, but very very much with Sagan's identity. Because I do think the biggest difference sort of musically in Doctor Who is that Murray Gold's music for better or for worse, is very kind of look at me, listen to me, like notice me, whereas mm -hmm. Sagan Akinola's music is very often the opposite of that. And I think the way it was used in that it, it in that moment, it does need to be a bit of notice me music to just sort of make really make you focus in on the moment and how significant the stopwatch is. And so it's nice that it kind of brings in a bit of that um, moriness, for lack of a better phrase, and puts its own touch on it. I enjoyed that, yeah. So... Before we started, uh, before we recorded this episode, I asked um, some regular um, Trap One um, contributors to um, make their predictions for what might happen in The Vanquishers. And we got some outrageous stuff here. So let's have a look at how well everyone has done. So we'll start with you, Jason McLaughlin. Who has um, who apparently says Bell and Vinda's baby will be the timeless child sacrificed to the flux, which then gives the child the power of regeneration and will be left to be found by Tektuan, thus restoring the fractured timelines. Wrong. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's any element of that. Well, we've got three specials. We've got specials to go. Yeah, that's true. Born, yeah. Yeah. But the, I was watching to be the, the whole time we were watching it. I was really nervous that that's where it was going because I just, I just thought that's so obvious. I don't want it to be that. It's just the baby. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. He goes on to say the Doctor also merges the multiverses together to repair the damage done throughout the universe, and this then causes the Doctor to frag fracture into many different alternatives. Yeah. 
<gasps> i.e. the fugitive doctor. Um, so, sorry, Jason, you're wrong there. <laughs> Fractury bit, right? Yeah, that's true. We'll yeah, give you a point there. There's something there that's almost, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's obviously complete different direction, and yet somehow he sort of accidentally hit on something that was quite <laughs> yes. there. So all these um, Doctor, many versions of the Doctor from the multiverses damages the TARDIS beyond repair, leading to the image that we've seen for the New Year special. The Swarm will escape to turn up in Jodie's final episode and contribute to her regeneration. Oh, and the Rani turns up and goes, surprise! <laughs> um, so, sorry Jason, you're mostly wrong. <laughs> Oh, oh, no, no, he goes on to say either that or Chibnall just does a countdown to save the universe like in most of his other episodes. <laughs> and he didn't do that either. Nope. <laughs> no. Can I just say, before you start the next one, yeah. coming back to the Rani. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Everything comes back to the Rani. How long now has, has Doctor Who fandom, every time <laughs> we've had a new female character come up on the screen, shout, it's either the Rani or it's Susan. How many years do we think? Well, I mean, you know, for the Rani, probably since about 1987, and for Susan, since <laughs> yeah. about 1965, so... Um... Exactly. And then what happens area. in Flux? What happens in Flux? We get the Ravagers. <laughs> so we get Azure, who is um, calculating, sadistic, you know, suave, sophisticated... <laughs> female menace and what does everyone say swarm is the master <laughs> <laughs> that's just no pleasing some people anyway. just want to get that off my chest Carry on. okay <laughs> right so um i've got one here from um pete lambert whoever he may be oh god he's on everything and, um, he says i think it may lead to the specials all being set in the other universe and it might even turn out that we are living in that universe and the Doctor is breaking into the real world for the first time. Which is a lovely now guess. <laughs> but wrong. And, yes, and none of it happened this week. Yeah. I still think that. And it is a thing that people are saying. You know, well, what, it's weird to just mention that there's another universe in the second last episode and then basically not mention it particularly in the finale mm -hmm. or at least not have it turn out to be part of the... It's, if it's a red herring, it's the biggest red herring in history. I was going to say, if they never do come back to it, though, that does make the idea that it could actually be our universe quite quite sweet, actually. I quite yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like the Doctor, it's sort of like the, there was the land of fiction, and then there was the, the land where the entirety of the rest of Doctor Who happened, and then there's our real universe. Um, yeah. We'll I, save that for New Year. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, then, um, who have we got next? Oh, um, Mark McManus, um, originator of Trap One, has come up with this theory. I think that part of the Williamson Tunnels will be a secret unit base in the modern day where Kate and Osgood team up with Yaz, Dan and Jericho to fight the Sontarans. Okay, he's partly right there. Yeah. Because yeah, there pretty, is a fight with the Sontarans, with Kate, Yaz, Dan and Jericho. So, yep, yeah, okay, yeah. Mark, you get that one. Doctor Who will choose saving the universe over finding out about her pre-Hartnell selves. The pocket watch lost as it blows up with Division and the Ravagers. So, almost, but not quite right. Not bad. And apparently the Fugitive Doctor has been manipulating things behind the scenes all along, getting Carvinista's ship to Earth early, making Williamson's tunnel timey-wimey, and it's her TARDIS that Dan has seen before. So, 
you failed at the last hurdle, Mark. Yeah. You were doing I mean, so well. Fair, he's come up with a really nice solution to resolve all of the plot holes that uh, yeah. remain. It's just yeah. that Chibnall just obviously felt it was okay to leave those plot holes. Uh, and... <laughs> yeah. It's Basically, like what Mark has done is done some really good um, script editing work there. Um, <laughs> but... I was looking out for something to explain why that bit of the um, the the, the, the uh, resolution of the first cliffhanger where the doctor where they just say oh after the flux hit the TARDIS we just seem to have been fl thrown clear and the doctor yeah. sort of goes hmm I guess so and she looked a bit suspicious of that and I was sure that that was going to but no yeah and then immediately after that as well Yaz mm. is teleported to time and Dan to Liverpool yeah. and like with Dan to Liverpool you can sort of go oh maybe it's they're being returned to like that but Yaz going to time like what was that about like so yeah i definitely still think there's a few things like that that could have been neatly resolved by something like that um but alas <laughs> i think it's this comes out of what i said before you know um chibnall has thrown us these red heavens or you know if he hasn't done you know this has just been part of the fun for me the whole fun of flux has been you know weekly seeing what um people are making of these little snippets of conversation i mean the one that um that really got me was Vinda, you know, when Vinda arrives at Atropos and, you know, he's told he's at Atropos and he says, that's impossible. So it's like, well, he knows what Atropos is. Yes. Vinda knows what a TARDIS is. You know, that suggested to me that there was going to be a lot more behind Vinda than that actually turned out to be, or maybe still be more revealed. Mm -hmm. But again, it's just, you know, it's, it's that broad church thing of having those characters in there that you think of done the murder or, or important to the plot, but are just there for the distracting from what's really happening. Yes. Um, speaking of Vinda and Bell, um, one <laughs> Conrad Westmus um, made um, the following uh, prediction, um, which is Vinda and Bell give birth to a green shimmer on baby called Bellany. Money on it, he says. Well, I hope you haven't put any money on it because. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah, who who took this bet? Who can now claim Because, um, you know, I'll, I'll take that money happily, Conrad. Um... And everyone screams. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, well, we're not doing very well with our predictions so far. So what have we got next? Sorry, I've just had to change messages now. So, um, right. Ah, okay. So, um... Luca James Gregory, aged nine and a half, made the following prediction, and it was wonderful. <laughs> the Doctor will fight Bone Queen and Bone King. Bone Queen will be destroyed, and Bone King will have his life support turned off. The Doctor will find a way to get Yaz and Dan back from 1903. Oh, and the ruler of the division will also be defeated by the Doctor. Well, he's pretty spot on there, I think, in many ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Out of the mouth of the babes comes yep. the actual, the actual truth. I'm definitely going to insist on calling from the Bone King of Bone Queen by now. Those are great <laughs> names. Um... Bit of a sort of stag night Hindu feel to it. <laughs> <laughs> that's just that's me lowering the tone. For the benefit of the people out there listening that don't know what my son is talking about in this, um, the leader of the division was actually the Grand Serpent. Yes. Oh, oh, that's not a mm -hmm. you thought the Grand Serpent was was the leader of the division. But yeah, he called that one. Yep. So let's see how his dad did. <laughs> well, I think the Doctor will get her memories back, or at least some of them, and this is where we'll see the fugitive Doctor in flashback. Uh-uh. 
No. I expect Swarm and Azure to be defeated and the universe will be unfluxed. Well, they're definitely defeated. We're not sure about whether the universe is unfluxed no. or not, yeah, are we? There wasn't a reset, because that was the other thing. Yeah. Remember when you first asked, I just sarcastically posted a big a, a screen grab of how to reset your phone yes. as being the likely explanation for how it would end. And I was delighted that it didn't. Yeah. Or it hasn't, so it hasn't yet. But yeah, no. it would be interesting to see them touch on that a bit more, because I think it was nice that we didn't go for a research switch option. And yet, at the same time, they don't sort of acknowledge at the end of the episode the fact that, like, most of the universe is <laughs> yeah. dead. Like, um, so it'll be interesting to see how the rest of the era picks the up on that. that. The bits that survived Legopolis are now looking even worse than they were then. I'm imagining at the end, the trailer for the next, sorry, jumping around all over the place, but you just fix it. The, the trailer for the uh, for next time makes me think that there's something fluxy to do with that, whatever time loop's going on with the Daleks. Yeah. And, and obviously the, the fact uh, that we've even got mm. Daleks sort of means that obviously not all the Daleks were destroyed, so... Oh, yeah, some people were really upset on Twitter that the Doctor might have committed genocide against the monsters. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like well, you haven't seen the Troughton era. It was, it was, it was a genocide-heavy episode, I must admit. With the, but, um, yeah, the, the Doctor killing lots of Daleks is not exactly unusual. No, and I wonder if that is actually a deliberate thing, because like, if you think back to her, how appalled she was by uh, by the the um, Joe Martin's doctor using the old gun backfire switcheroo trick uh, in Fugitive, uh, and and, and Jodie's doctor was absolutely appalled by that. And violence is never the answer. Uh, and, but now, of course, is she becoming much more like her pre uh, her, her, her pre whatever self? Yeah, and there is pre- an interesting thing with the Whitaker era where it's this very always this fixation on not using guns, but kind of mm. then not necessarily, it, it's the anti-violence message often gets lost in a very specific focus on guns, um, which is probably a, a wider problem with Dr. Overall, but it does come up a lot in the Whitaker era, I think. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, and I wondered, you know, when she says to, um, to Serpenty, um, uh, you're, on, you're on the naughty step. I have a feeling that somebody said that as a criticism of her doctor in the early days, that that was all she did to her opponents. I'm pretty sure. I don't, I don't yes, really it's know. In this context, yeah. she says, yeah, that, that all she does is put on the other side. Whereas in this context, she does that, but is yeah. torturing him. Which yes. is quite, uh, <laughs> That's a very naughty step. Mm, yeah. I do wonder, yeah. given that we also get the ominous stuff from time at the end about how she must be innocent, if they're trying to push it into a sort of david tennant-esque arc of mm. going too far and you know but or i don't know whether it's that deliberate or not whether it's just yeah. that we didn't really think through the implications of having the doctor torture the villain but mm. but yes yeah, it's so hard to come up for them to come up with a fresh way of doing a impending regeneration yeah as soon as they so time started saying that stuff i was like this is feeling very david tennant all yeah. of a sudden mm-hmm. but, yeah uh, yeah, will... I think scratch his nose three times. <laughs> <laughs> so, Fraser goes on to say that everyone will be put back in their original timelines via Williamson's tunnels, apart from Dan and Yaz and the Doctor. So, at least Williamson yeah. went back to his original yeah. time via that. And yeah, Yaz did went it. through the other so way. So did Yaz. Yeah. So did Yaz. I, Yaz I was went... just saying that. I was just saying that. <laughs> Give me a moment. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, and they will be left um, in the cliffhanger to the festive special, which I guess will have something to do with the TARDIS breaking up further, which again is another 
thing that is just been left Good hanging, call. and we've seen more cobwebs appearing in the background of the TARDIS, more doors appearing in odd places, still in uh, in in this final episode, haven't we? And things are still not quite right in there. At the same time, it's it seems to be working perfectly well now. I mean, after you know, the trouble that you had with Pilot in it in the Halloween Apocalypse, um, and of course, Swarm did explain in was it War Sometimes or Once Upon Time that you know time running amok was causing damage to the TARDIS. So that's we did get the explanation for that. And since then, since time was put right in Episode Three, um, you know the TARDIS seems to be stabilised and working again. It's just obviously the, you know, when they gave the um, promotional picture for the New Year's special, it was the TARDIS literally exterior breaking up as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's what made us think that. Yeah, I can definitely see that from the um, promotional picture. And it was one of the things that I thought, but there is part of me that's having seen how this series has ended now and having seen the trailer for the next one is wondering whether that is going to be more just sort of a visual kind of abstract representation of this idea that we're doing like a time loop story rather than as literal as we all first yeah. thought but it'll be interesting to see because mm. i think it still could go that way and be very literal but yeah mm. yeah there's still lots to find out about um including um apparently um dan's mom and dad will um will and their walk will be instrumental in defeating the swarm <laughs> sadly we didn't get to see them again but that that yeah. would have been a, a joy to watch i think yeah um I, yep. I was very disappointed that um, that Swarm didn't go to Chile because we, we had those two things on screen mm-hmm. at the same time. The, the possibility for punning there was fantastic. <laughs> An open goal missed. Um, so um, either Dan or Vinda and Bell will have as yet undisclosed background knowledge that will help unflux the universe. Well, Vinda and and Die had that had that moment yeah. finding finding passenger which helped unflux the universe so yeah yeah although i would credit i would credit the story i was pleased that it wasn't quite undisclosed it was yes it was undisclosed in the sense that we didn't know it beforehand but it was stuff that we saw them find out together yes and i think it's we we yeah. understood that the passenger contained all these people inside mm-hmm. and like I, it, it didn't feel like a big leap like that is one of the story bits that actually you know we've known since episode two or three what passenger is and what it does and the idea that actually yeah passenger could take in all the fucks is completely keeping with what we'd learned much earlier in the series so i did think that was quite a clever moment yeah um, i thought that was a neat piece of plotting because the answer was in plain sight the whole time yeah and had been set up ages yeah. before you just didn't was, quite know how it would would come together. Yeah, it was a yeah. good example of the kind of sort of set up payoff stuff that Chibnall often gets criticised for not being amazing at. But it's, you know that was a good piece of it there. I think that's yeah. And and as a teenage laser quest addict, I was very happy when um, when yes. Diane said that that's how she knew how to fire a gun so well. If only the Sontarans had been to laser quest, <laughs> they would have. And I, I just like the fact that that line had a shout out to um, Fazakali as well. Um, it's not often you get Fazakali mentioned on uh, primetime television. Fantastic place name, isn't it? Could easily yeah. be a planet. Mm-hmm. But, um, and and it was a big relief that that didn't then lead to her bloody morphing into Romana or something. Not that I'm, oh, oh damn, actually I would have liked that. But you know what I mean? She didn't, did, didn't have to then reveal herself to be a... Yeah, it wasn't, Binda, why are you so good with a laser? And she's like, well, actually, I'm an alien from a planet blog. Um, yeah. It was like, 
Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Jamani! <laughs> of course, she was Verani all along. Um, She's a museum guide. They've all got that potential. <laughs> yeah, if you touch those exhibits, you're in big <laughs> she, she was actually She was actually the curator, because um, that's why she's in the museum. There we go. Oh, there we are. Uh, but I really liked <laughs> Di. I really liked that she um, seemingly was someone very ordinary, and which she was, actually, and mm-hmm. she t- could. she was just intelligent. And can come up yeah. and find the answers by working out from where she was. Oh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I do think it's a shame that we've not had as much of her as some of the other guest characters. And obviously, you know, there's only so many episodes and it's a mix. But I would have definitely liked to have seen more with her. And maybe we will, because obviously, while the other characters have kind of gone off to do their own thing, she is still kind of tied to Dan's story. So you can imagine that if they do go back to Liverpool in one of the specials, she could play a role in it. And I would like to see mm. that. Yeah, do you think that when Dan eventually leaves, he's just going to go on his date with Di at the end? Yeah, I would like ending. to see them do something else in between to explain how it would go from that quite frosty almost mm. ending that they had in this episode to that. I wouldn't like it to just be like his final scene as he just goes and this time she says yes. I'd like to see a little something in between, but I don't know exactly what. Yeah. Yeah, so apparently um, Carvinista, Jericho, Dai and the Guru will form a new unit's Torchwood-style special ops team called the K-Team. No what? one... So... No, 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 no. no not no. quite right on the headcount. Carvinista, Bell and Vinda are now the K-Team. They, okay. Yeah, I mean, their dialogue was very clearly doing the sort of oh, we're going to go off and have adventures on our own. So, yeah, I think you weren't too far off with that one. Make some money, get into trouble, get out of trouble. Call me Big Finish. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, you've also got um, Kate Stewart and Claire on Earth as the second Uh (laughs) K-team. So I'm I'm, I'm claiming my point for the K-team. Okay. And you do go on to say, no one will be the Rani, the Master, or anything else. So, yeah, you win that one. Um, But then you lose that one because you also said, and there will be quarks. (laughs) (laughs) He says that every day. It's 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 more of a blessing than a prediction, isn't it? He's wearing one. (laughs) He's wearing one. There's one on my top, if that helps. Yeah, yeah. Right. Let's but, uh, I just want to, you know, going back to what we've, we've discussed through there of, of the plot holes, the sort of like threads that have been left un, oh. unanswered, as it were. I think this is um, speaks very much of the type of writer that Chibnall is. Mm-hmm. He's very much in that Stephen Moffat um, mould of a writer who is more concerned about the journey than the destination. So it's it's all about. The ride to the end of Flux. When we get to the end, when we get to the end of Chapter Six, the fact that we have not had everything tied up is not really important to Mr. Chibnall. It's the fun that we've had on the way. Um, what do you guys think of that? I can I can definitely see a sort of quite surprising in some ways, given how different their styles are. Moffat Chibnall comparison in the sense that the direction they want to take the story in isn't necessarily the direction you'd expect it to go in. Because I think this finale, I think a lot of people were expecting based on last week's setup, some real kind of deep lore stuff and some stuff to do with the second universe. And Chibnall really took it in another direction. I think maybe what makes the difference there is that with an example of an episode like Hellbent, where Stephen Moffat really takes 
the finale in a different direction to what the audience is expecting. He takes it in a different direction to instead kind of center in on the emotional stories of our characters. Whereas without being too harsh, what Chibnall does here is takes it in a different direction to center in on it's actually the Santarans of the main villains in a very, um, I think it was um, Will Shaw, um, a friend of mine who I watched the episode commented that that was very Invasion of Time-esque to, you know, have these other villains going on and then suddenly in the last couple of episodes, well, actually, the Santarans are the big bads, um, but yeah. No, I think, I think sort of one of the things I've really noticed with Chibnall's Who is that he plays a very long game and that um, things are mentioned very early on that are only now being paid off and things that people have thought were were um, plot holes or poor endings or things like that are being paid off a lot later. And I think, I'm just making my prediction here for what, what's to come, that um, the master is um, busy um, putting together his, um, what have we got? Um, forces massed against you with their master. So I think he's he's going to have um, the time agent from Rosa, um, Jack Robinson, um, <laughs> Tim Shaw, they'll all be there. He'll bring all the villains who just disappeared and didn't get their comeuppance. They'll all, the master's been kidnapping them to mass against the Doctor for her regeneration story. So there you go. You can have that one. Hopefully <laughs> there'll be a, a ting there as well. Oh, um, yeah. Well, oh, let's hope so. Yeah. <laughs> So why didn't Pating just eat the flocks? There we go. Yeah. Oh, that would have been great if that was the, um, the plot solution. Forget passenger. Pating just is like. We <laughs> so. all make Pating burp in front of it, and so. <laughs> but then we're getting more into Slovene territory. <laughs> I did want to make a, a counter argument to what you said there, though, Bryn, about yeah. the the character moments within Chibnall's uh, right, and especially this story, because the thing that stuck out for me for this story was how many big character moments were had um, throughout. You know, you had um, the Doctor and Yaz having a really big moment when they got reunited and the hugging and how long have I been away from you for to the end scene where, you know, you know they're on the verge of kissing, aren't they, really, until <laughs> until Dan comes in. Um, oh, Dan. Had... <laughs> Think of Dan the shippers. <laughs> Goose, yeah. goose, space gooseberry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you had Dan and Die scenes where, you know, it's initially a very warm meeting, which turns very frosty. You were late. You left me in this position. We're not going on the second date. These are you know, big moments I... for these characters. Carvanista, Last of the Lupari, that was a massive moment. That was mm. just, you know, His a joke. That was... was phenomenal, wasn't it? Yeah. The stare. The mm-hmm. stare yeah. that he gave it was the... Stare, like, I agree with that. The the absolute pathos that they got out of the performance from Carvinista, considering that he's under, like, a massive fluffy yeah. mask. And, yeah, I yeah. really felt it. I think that's part of the direction. Mm. But, yeah. So. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. and, and Jericho, the, you know, raise a glass the to... Scene, the scene between Jericho... Scandals. Yeah, and the scene between Jericho and... Um, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm tying myself in knots. I, I, I was leaping ahead to um, to our tunnels, dude. Um, Williamson. Yeah. Williamson, thank you. I, I've renamed him. That's how much. <laughs> but um, uh, Joseph Williamson, that's why, because the J was jumping into my head, because I, I had it on my note, because you were sending me in that direction talking about these character moments between him and Yaz, when after, after him popping up in all these episodes, apparently being this ranting maniac, and then he meets Yaz, and she just talks in, in the episode five, 
she just talks matter-of-factly yeah. to him in a policey style and he's just he, and he's just so moved to have found someone who's talking about exactly mm. what he sees and, and to connect with her and understand it um but yeah but then also jericho i mean his final oh, his yeah. final scene but but all, all of his scenes in, in this episode the, the bit where um uh he's um with the sontaran and, and the thing you know what happens if we do cooperate death you know? um, <laughs> it, was, it was funny and, and full yeah. of pathos and tragic all at the same time oh his yeah, yeah his last yeah. moments were just beautifully done and of uh, mm. good work from kevin McAnally, who has yeah. made him such a relatable and lovely character who's found his joy of life and as he said has lived more in the last three years <laughs> than he'd done in the rest of his lifetime i just love that he thought of the name of his autobiography as he was dying <laughs> <laughs> the scourge yeah. of scoundrels and I, yeah and his last words, think... yeah, what an awfully big adventure. It was just yeah, perfect. Yeah, I do think that was a, it was a, a effective and moving down. I think because we liked that character so much. I think it was, if, if you had have asked me to predict for the episode who, who was going to die, I think I probably would have said Jericho. But I think it's interesting that I expected it, him to have a sacrifice moment kind of with him being, you know, the older character and given his kind of backstory. And it doesn't really play as that. It's this big... It's it's a silly little accident, really. Yeah. That he kind of flicks the ring off, and it was interesting to see that play out mm. and just yeah, like him not yeah. have a big hero sacrifice, but just kind of have mm. that accident. And obviously, there's still meant to be a bit of sort of sense of heroism to it in the way he just tells Claire to not Claire, sorry. Um, yes, Claire. Yes, it is Claire. Yeah, it is Claire. Um, <laughs> I always get Claire. Well, as shown in that first scene where the Doctor appears in the tunnels and yells everyone's name. Just <laughs> yeah. to, um, but but yeah, um, the fact that he tells her to just go and you know obviously shoots at the Santarans, but um, doesn't quite work out for him. And it was if there's a certain tragedy to it that you wouldn't necessarily have got if it was more of a sacrifice moment. And yeah, he's still clearly very, as you say, very happy with his his lot. It kind of yeah. takes it very stoically, which completely suits the character that was set up yeah. in the first episode he appeared in in episode yeah. four. And he, got, he just got that rather odd line, which I don't, you know, um, he said, um, I've lived more in my time with you, Doctor, than in my previous two decades. It's like, hey, he spent about half an hour with the Doctor. And B, why, why only his previous two decades? I mean, he's not 20. <laughs> I wasn't quite I sure. He's talking he's talking post-war, I think. Yeah, he's more yeah. intense than I've got. Ah, okay. That's um, a good, that is a very good point. Yeah, because that links back to um, yeah. Village of the Angels, doesn't it? Where he says he was mm. at Belson. And yeah. um, he yeah. hasn't done anything significant since, apart from these experiments. But yeah, it's, it, it is to the mid sixties. Yeah, yeah, that, I think mm. so. That two decades is very specific. Yeah, yeah, you see, I hadn't you, thought you, that through. That's pretty clever. But I think your other point about him saying about the time spent with the doctor does—it's—it's <laughs> yeah. it's a very similar thing with like you know Dan at the moment. Like the the Dan has spent so little time with the doctor, but has like lived with the Az for three years. Like it's a very interesting Tardis dynamic to go into where um, they've all met at the same time, but then he's gone on to have and. Yeah, similarly, there's a lot of characters in this story that don't get to spend very much time with the Doctor, which I think is quite interesting because it means you get these different interrelationships. Um, I do think in this episode, some of that maybe gets a bit lost at times. I think when the Doctor and Belle first meet and about 30 seconds later, Doctor's like, right, Belle, you're going to go on this solo mission. And she hasn't actually had any conversation, You know, even if it was just Carvinista saying something to a doctor that made it clear to the doctor that Belle was like a competent and useful person. 
but there's none of that the doctor and bell have just met and the doctor has no reason to trust bell but is instantly just like right here's what you're going to do, we'll do this. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Um, all right um, the plot's arrived yeah i think it is one of those things where it just gets lost slightly with it. there's yeah. so much happens in this episode there's and i've seen no people I've seen speculation, and I can totally see where it's coming from. That maybe, you know, oh, was was there originally a, t- a sort of in Chibnall's mind a ten-episode version of this that had to be cut down to six, and that would explain why it's all so frantic and uh, disjointed. But to be honest, I imagine if there was a ten-episode version of this, it would have had an extra six characters in it. It would have all had their own plot. I just think this is the speed he wanted to run at. Yeah, although, he just wants space. yeah, it's literally it. It's like the amount of um, characters that Chibnall puts in will expand to fill the size of a container, like a gas. It's just <laughs> like the swarm. Yeah. Swarm, Stephen. Um, yeah. yeah. No, I, I think you can definitely see, um, you know, this being the bones of a 10-part series. You know, you would have, you know, Apocalypse has been, you know, your, your first story, you'd have the Sontarans being more standalone, you'd have Village of the Angels being more standalone. Um, once Upon Time would be your episode five. That would be your sort of fugitive of the Jadoon episode before, you know, Survivors and Vanquishers comes in as your sort of two-part ending. Yeah. Um, one thing that struck me was um, Dan. It's, uh, you know, going back to what you're saying, Bryn, about, you know, the Doctor seems to be, you know, take on board Bell very quickly. I can get on board with that with the Doctor. You know, the Doctor just walking into a room immediately getting... You know, sizing everyone up, you know, and having like, you know, five minutes to being able to then, you know, get the get the measure of a person. The thing that struck me was sort of Dan in episode one going into episode two. By episode two, you know, he's sneaking around the Albert docks. He's, you know, <laughs> uh, walking Sontarans left, right and centre. And I think that struck me as being a very um, much a result of the compressed episode structure because Dan has automatically just had to be become a companion straight mm. away up until that point he's been, had about half an hour in a in a cell on Carvinista ship he's had no real experience of yeah. aliens or anything but he then you know you, you can't in a six episode arc give him that time to develop or you yeah. know grow into that and when you know you've got to do it narratively yeah. yeah Dan has fallen into companion very quickly without really ever getting much time to stop or, or think about yeah. it. And, um, you know, I'm sure, I hope that between episode three and episode four, they did, you know, all have a chance to, you know, have a shower and go to the toilet, have a nice sit down meal in the TARDIS. <laughs> but like, other than that, um, yeah. and it's kind of interesting how the scene at the end of this episode where Dan goes on the TARDIS into the TARDIS actually felt more like a sort of traditional companion yeah. joining up scene. It's exactly. like, you know, it's almost like we've had this, we re- really, in the same way, but in a classic series, six-part story, you yeah. know, a character would meet the Doctor at the start of a story and just be a almost like the role of a guest character, and then yeah. at the very end would the kind of join up. So and... the whole of Flux is Dan's introduction story. Mm. Yeah. So it's not yeah. Halloween Apocalypse. It is Flux. Mm-hmm. That is his yeah. introduction story. And he gets and they know that we've. Yeah, and Chibnall knows. We've seen that so many times before. We've seen so many companions entering. It's like, like you know, the first Tom Holland Spider-Man movie where it, someone said, how did you become Spider-Man? He says, oh, I got bit by a spider. Because it's like, it, we've seen spy- that Spider-Man yeah. getting turned into big, being created story several times in the past few years. Just get on with it now. And yeah, yeah we'll, the, the viewers will fill it in. Yeah. On, on a similar note, it's why I quite liked um, when Vinda first went into the TARDIS in episode three. And I liked that, because obviously we've seen, how many times have we seen a scene where it's the first time someone goes into a TARDIS? And I liked the bit where he went, is this a TARDIS? 
and then it was like you could see the awe in his eyes so when he went in but rather than that sort of awe coming from a place of ignorance of being completely no idea that this was a thing that existed it, it comes from a place of knowledge like he's in awe of a TARDIS because he knows what a TARDIS is which is a very different way of playing that scene and you know Jacob Anderson's performance in that I thought was great I that's one of my favorite little moments I think in the series it was the excitement wasn't it the excitement of seeing the TARDIS you yeah look, is that yeah, a TARDIS really rather than like, it. yeah yeah um, Fun, fanboying it basically because if he is <laughs> this, yeah and I still wonder with him, and I'm still not quite sure after after all these episodes, to what extent then whether his character was originally going to be Captain Jack or whether they're originally going to be two characters, maybe Captain, because particularly his way of going, constantly announcing what his own name is as if it's a catchphrase. <laughs> well, Captain Jack, always bloody, I'm Captain Jack. A lot Gordon. of people do that in Chibnall Who, though, because Jericho <laughs> does it as well. Like, it's, a, I think it's a... I mean, even I just in, that. <laughs> yeah, Jer- Jericho has a couple of moments of, including oh, yeah. his death memory, where he's like, I am mm. Eustatius Jericho, mm. hear me <laughs> roar, or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I love um, that someone calculated what the Scrabble score, someone on Twitter oh. actually calculated what the Scrabble score for Eustatius would be. Because when she said it, I was like, but it's mostly vowels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, think, <laughs> I think Alan Barnes might have said that, possibly someone else, but I think I heard someone say that Alan Barnes had tweeted about the Scrabble thing and said this is a, a not a, not an accurate enough joke. Um, <laughs> no, yeah. Good delivery, but actually not accurate. Yeah, Jericho would probably be a better score just because, or oh, is Jay only four? I don't no, know. Jay's um, 10, so yeah, you'd yeah, do well Yeah, there. yeah, Jericho would be better just because of the Jay. <laughs> So we've got one final set of predictions for the um, for the thing because although I set this as a toss to everyone, I actually forgot to put my own one down. <laughs> um, so you could just have my one that was going on through the episode where um, there was suddenly a great big talk about antimatter versus matter, mm. and I thought antimatter, it's Omega, Omega's <laughs> coming back. Uh, no, Omega <laughs> didn't come back. So um, um, it's over to Bryn. Um, who says, um, I think there will be an appearance from the Fugitive Doctor. So, oh. no. Well, that was a twist that there wasn't, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, it was. I think everyone <laughs> yeah. expected that. Yeah. All the people I was watching it with were like, just assuming. We didn't think it'd be much, but we thought it'd be something. No. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Cybermen and the Daleks will only get cameos. Yeah, I think that was fairly easy to predict, yeah. so I won't take too much credit for it. But, uh, yeah. Vinder and Bell's baby won't actually appear or be significant. There will just be a nice moment when they reunite when Bell tells Vinder that she's pregnant. Oh. Spot on. Also, um, yeah. on the head. Yep. Yeah, also, I don't think the Doctor will get her memories back. So, yeah, wow, I mean, really, yep. Yeah. I'm happy with that. I think you I went for slightly it. easier predictions than trying to... I sort of avoided talking about the flux or swarm because I was like, <laughs> I don't know. But I think I'm very happy with the Vinder and Bell thing because I was kind of like, when that did happen, when we got that exact scene that I basically described, I was like, oh, yeah. And I, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed Vinder and Bell's reunion just because I find them both such charming presences as characters. So to actually see them together. And I'm glad that they got a kiss as well because I had a moment where I was like, I'm gonna, with COVID precautions and whatever the situation was, but like it was nice to see that on screen. But it was because if they just had a hug, it would feel a bit like, come on. After um, all that, yeah, yeah. After, after, yeah. After, after interrupting the end credits to give us her giving him a voicemail. The other way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've got to really see how much these people kept each other. Actually, yeah, my Captain Jack thing would be a bit weird unless she was Captain Jack's daughter in the original draft. But hey, I'm yeah, I, I, I was very much of the oh, Binder's a replacement for Captain Jack until I watched the series, and now I kind of think that it's almost the version of series 13 that might have featured Captain Jack more heavily 
is probably or at all even it's probably yeah, so maybe. completely removed from this yeah. covid six episode version that actually even if there's some connection between the like premise of where Vinda was set up it's probably so far removed that it's not even really relevant yeah yeah, yeah. right so obviously the doctor hasn't got all her memories back yet so um we've seen scenes now of the black and white house and what i really like is that the doctor's past pre hartnell doctor is black and white where everything else is color mm. so that's a nice little i uh, thought that was a nice little touch um so the doctor has taken the pocket watch and hidden it in the depths of the tardis somewhere where she can't get to it so how did you feel about that uh, fraser what did you feel about that um, was that a good payoff it was it was it is what it is to be honest it's whichever way you're going to go is going to have its um you know downsides if you give the doctor all our memories back of pre division or pre hartnell or whatever then you're stripping away a layer of mystery that's been added by that um plot twist if you don't give the doctor her memories back you know she's got them so why does she not want to um access them it's it's catch 22 to be honest i think you know whatever you do is is fraught with danger Well, that stunned everyone into silence. So, <laughs> make you Fraser. Yeah, no, yeah, on. Dead right. I mean, and it was it's a whole thing's an interesting comment. Ah, there might be more. There might not actually be thirteen doctors. It's nice and mysterious. But going, no, in fact, there's actually sixty-three. That, <laughs> that like, kills it. I was like, oh, you've just answered that question. So, the longer they don't answer this question for the better for, for me although I don't, yeah I, you know, I was so conflicted at the end of last year about that whole thing of this is simultaneously making the doctor more mysterious and also less mysterious i can't quite decide mm. i still yeah, can't decide. I have similar feelings about the timeless children where it's like oh they're doing this big like law thing that's going to really change things up and that, like i like that sort of anarchic energy of just like mm. really messing up the law and yet it does it in an episode that's filled with continuity references like there's a line about the russo in the timeless story it's kind of almost i feel like that is the inherent contradiction of a lot of chibnall's <laughs> law stuff is that he's trying to shake things up but at the same time he's so grounded in what's come before which is not a bad way to do doctor who to be fair um and yeah i think i don't think the doctor's ever going to get their memories fully back at that time because I don't know that there's an interesting story you can tell with that and yet after the end of this episode I'm almost certain that that stopwatch is going to come into play again pr probably in the centenary special um mm. like when she was delivering that dialogue and it was when she said you know don't show me where it is you know she's just talking to the TARDIS like don't tell me where it is and there was this long pause like and she's going to say so she's going to say to Emma, she, when, but that's that moment she's like unless I really ask she might as well have said unless it's um, the centenary special because you know, <laughs> um, I think yeah, it's like buying think, a box sorry yeah I just I think that's going to be their nice excuse for maybe getting yeah. Joe Martin in there and maybe some other you know big kind of nice references I do think the BBC are going to try and push the centenary special to be a big thing and I think Chibnall is probably going to end up utilising the stop what the the, the watch um, pocket watch is a way to do that and exploring something with the doctor's memories um yeah yeah it's like when you buy a 
buying a big box of chocolates because you've got some friends coming over in a couple of weeks and you put it on the top shelf so that you'll forget that it's there and you never really forget that it's there <laughs> and it's chances of lasting for a couple of well this is personal experience anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that was a bit of an insight into your personal life there um... <laughs> Yeah, I think some um, carbon friends. I'll put it. Yeah. In, I'll put it inside cupboard number nine. <laughs> yeah, I thought right. This was it a joke. The thing about um, about Yaz with the doors at the, at the very beginning. So the cliffhanger resolution at the very beginning. I love the cliffhanger resolution. Was the Doctor ducks? That was so Sylvester McCoy. I thought. <laughs> yeah, I I do think this this year has had a bit of a problem with its cliffhangers, where the solution is kind of just like, oh. Like, because because um, it's not quite as bad as just ducking, not quite as egregious, but the like end of episode two one as well, which is effectively she just like dives and pushes. You know, there's a few cliffhangers where it feels like the na this the way the cliffhangers portrayed in previous episodes is trying to suggest that something's already happened, and the next episode is like oh, just a few seconds earlier, you know. Um, but yeah, it's like winding yeah. back of it. Yeah, it's, I yeah, think it's, it's difficult the, uh, when trying to do a series like this. It's very, say, like, yeah, it's, it's yeah, the I, deadly I really assassin episode from. two. With with suddenly seeing the gun that you haven't seen at the end of episode one moment, <laughs> yeah. really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Mark of the Rani's the most amazing one. But George suddenly George Stevenson was running to intercept <laughs> that um, runaway truck all the time. Now him and um, him and Joseph Williamson could have a spin-off. Big finish. That would be. Great. <laughs> I am I am with fascinated <laughs> when Doctor Who does like historical characters but doesn't do a story that's really about them and their life and instead does something mm. that's like they get very in when they're very heavily involved in sci-fi hijinks you know like basically yeah. the opposite of rosa which goes to a great effort to not really have rosa being a big science fi like there's science fiction stuff going on but it really tries to in being sensitive not not put her into too much of a sci-fi context um no. whereas obviously with Joseph Williamson, and then also with Mary Seacole in the Santaran story, it really feels like they're, they're just fully in a science fiction plot. And, you know, um, yeah. I, I do, there was, I'm imagining that in a version of this series that wasn't Flux, we would have had a Santaran story with Mary Seacole and that would have given her a bigger role. And I suppose there is a part of me that's kind of sad we didn't get to have a full on Mary Seacole story that really went into her because. Like I've been saying for years, I'd like to see a Doctor Who Mary Seacole story. So obviously when we found out that was happening, I was like, oh, that's great. But it's not really about her, which is understandable given the context of Flux. But yeah. 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 And yeah, you're right. And, and I mean, it's great that Doctor Who can do all those different tones, isn't it? Yeah. But um, yeah, you wouldn't have had, you know, Rosa on the bus being attacked by Renegade flying quarks or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could have done. It'd be fun. But that wasn't the spirit mm -hmm. of the story. No, no. no. And I think no. with the Williamson Tunnels, because no one really knows why he did it yeah. in the first place, you've got that just little bit of yeah. ambiguity that means you yeah. can play around yeah. with it a bit more. It's a very Doctor yeah. Who resolution to the mystery. It's it kind of, it, I suppose it falls into the same category as like the Agatha Christie thing where you've got a real life mystery that you then put a Doctor Who, yeah. you're like, oh, well, what happened... It was Doctor Who. Mm. Doctor Who did it. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, and I love that it was score number nine that had death behind it. I was thinking that that was like inside number nine, my favourite BBC oh, yeah. series. And then there was the joke. I'm sure it was um, Chibnall stealing the um, the joke from um, from Trial of a Time Order that don't go through that door and the fire <laughs> bursts out of it. But maybe I'm overreading. Stealing from Pippa Jane Baker, I know. Chris Chibnall. Well, <laughs> well I mean, that's paying it back. Um, <laughs> The, the Orphan 55 
plot twist that was basically just the mysterious planet. So um, I, yeah. I don't think that Chibnall is above stealing from um, Trial of the Time Lord <laughs> in spite of um, Chibnall's um, personal criticisms of it. I think he's seen the light now. <laughs> yeah, I think he, I do seem to remember there was some interview with him where he was asked about that and he gave a very sort of diplomatic, like, yes, I was quite young and quite, um, so, you know, yeah. if maybe one of us in 20 years' say. time will have to be like, yes, we were quite young when we were, uh, whatever <laughs> egregious thing we've managed, one of us has managed to say. Exactly. I'm very glad they never interviewed my 17-year-old self about <laughs> Doctor Who. That would have been shocking. <laughs> oh, God, no. My opinion, no. No. Sylvester <laughs> McCoy was not my doctor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had nobody to Pete. Oh. He won me over. He won me mm-hmm. over. But at first, he was not Colin Baker. Colin Baker, he stole Colin Baker's job, and that made yeah. me very angry. Yeah, I'm sure if anybody had asked me about my opinions on Doctor Who during the Matt Smith era, quite why anybody would be interviewing a 12-year-old, I'm not sure. But if they were, <laughs> I would now ha- I would have to backpedal a lot on those opinions now and be like, oh, I, I don't actually like hate everything about doctor who i promise it was just uh but it's lost its way yeah yeah <laughs> every every fan says that at some point the first time you think doctor who's lost its way it's We've all had our that's when you know you're uh, if, if, think, if you go through the phase of thinking doctor who's lost its way but don't stop watching it that's when you know you're stuck being a doctor who fan for life yeah, I think. yeah. yeah. it was the dominic glynn theme that did it for me it was the first time i said anything bad about doctor who well, I don't like this new theme. <laughs> so, um, the one thing that we really haven't touched on, and we've, I think we've still got a bit of time left, mm. if we haven't bored all the listeners yet, I don't think we have, <laughs> we're doing well here, is Jodie. And how yeah, brilliant she's been playing the three Doctors this week, yeah. and time as well. And uh, I think this series has been the making of her she has been absolutely superb um and i think those scenes where she's talking to herself were brilliant and i was so pleased to see we've got contact back (laughs) (laughs) it's been a long time i mean the the invention of the multiple jody's thing was such a like you know how are you going to wrap all all these subplots in one story Mm. like oh what if we just have a doctor for each individual subplot Mm -hmm. i thought that was a great story because it was the way it happened with the sort of her pulling off the the disc and um swarm touching at the same time i think was slightly contrived and yet I just went with it because I was enjoying, certainly by the time we had the two doctors meeting up as well and um, flirting, that was excellent. And even then, you say you brought up the contact thing, but like, you know, Chibnall, there's a criticism of Chibnall, but he quite often does exposition where the doctor is talking to herself. Well, he really took that to another level to have him <laughs> literally talking to two different versions of herself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and a common criticism of, of Timeless Children was that the doctor was too passive in her own finale. She just stood there while everything was, was mm. explained to her. Um, uh, but maybe that was deliberate and we were always heading in this direction, or maybe yeah. this is a um, repudiation yeah. of that. Yeah, because they have the doctor in three different places, <laughs> two, two of which really are where the actress happening and then the other one is just central plot control on that amazing set that i'm just um, the division headquarters is just one of the most beautiful set i don't even call it a set because i don't know how much it was actually there but just one of the most beautiful spaces that we've ever seen in doctor who it just it just trees and the swirling and everything it just it just fitted exactly what it was meant to be visually i was really impressed by that and uh and her ability to uh, sweet talk an ood in about 20 seconds proved very, <laughs> very, yeah. very effective. But all of the scenes that she's had this year 
And she's had them in the past too. But this year, that it's just been one after the other after the other, where she's in a really good position of conflict with someone. Right, I think the first one that really knocked it out was her first one with the Sontara in, in, in the uh, Mary Sequel story, which was both funny and she was outwitting them. She wasn't just saying, mm. I'm good, you're bad, so I'm going to win. She was tricking them. Uh, and uh, and that comes through in the, the torture scene in this uh, this week uh, is where she's completely she's obviously scared and in pain but at the same time he's the one who's looking unsettled and who knows he's losing losing it anyway and then the second Jody bursts in uh, to actually do the do the business but yeah that was great I thought I would say it was in War of the Sontaran it was when she's talking with the general not the Sontaran when she's oh yeah that's okay. um, you know in you know the the British Hotel and he's sitting there drunk on rum and you know mm. she's you know trying to explain I know what's going on I know how to beat these you know and it's, I've got Queen Victoria on my side he's like is she here now you know, <laughs> such a, it was a funny line but it was delivered by Jodie in such a cutting way um you know that it was there was a real sort of agency about her in in these episodes she's went through every everything you could want as an actor you know every emotion every scene has just been it's been a gift to her and she's absolutely mm. took that and made the most of it and especially you know like you say the three three doctors at the end was just a, a it's it's genius it's genius it's chibnall maneuvered the story in episode five to a point <coughs> where a lot of the threads had been tied up or you know you know and there was still quite a few threads but by then weaving those threads into three or four separate strands and given each one a doctor or from sort of like the the Vindam and Die section again it's just it was just genius it mm. really just you know it's 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 again one of those things you didn't see it going in that direction no absolutely did. not it really I think it on. yeah I think it really speaks to just how much is going on in this story when I think of all the things we've not spoken about, like we've barely even mentioned Kate Stewart, all of the, <laughs> like, you know, it's like, there's so much that happened in this story. And I don't like, I think there's a very, it plays very fast and loose with certain plot things. And there's obviously a lot of things mm. that are just like, oh, we're not going to deal with this because I'm going to move on to the next thing. And, um, but I think it does a good job actually at kind of covering everything. Like I, I other than the thing of not, them not really commenting on what the current state of the universe is, which I think I'd like to know. I feel like it did actually manage to address everything that I wanted it to address, um, which is impressive in itself, even if it's, yeah. you know, um, yeah. I think, but yeah, and, and speaking of Kate Stewart. <laughs> yeah. Oh my she's God. Never, she's, a, she's a divisive character. Some yes. people really love her. Other people don't. Um, and yeah, I don't know why they decided to not give her any of her father's charm. To, to make yeah. a very very starchy person who goes around telling everyone who her father was all the time. Um, yeah, I tell everyone who she was this time. She had her. That's I, true. I, I liked it actually because it's basically the first time she's had a hero moment and not been mm. not made a leftover. And the fact that she says Stuart and Robin because I I was so certain when it came to that bit that it was going to be the moment where she was like Lethbridge and like really go <laughs> for it. And I liked yeah. that they didn't because even in the last episode. But, um, you know, she she has a moment where she alludes to you know being from a family of stuff, and it's mm. very, and it's 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 nice to see, but it's of it kind of makes sense almost with Chibnall writing it because I think 
the first story she's in um, in the power of three when Chibnall writes her introduction, he does make mm-hmm. a point of he, he he does refer to the fact that she's um, Brigadier's um, daughter, but she he makes a deliberate point that she has dropped the Lethbridge bit because she doesn't want to get ahead because of him because she doesn't want to be overly associated with him. And so I do think it's been a shame that every other story she's in <laughs> is all about how associated and big, you know it's the same problem with Big Finish as well. It's not even just a television thing, and it's it's I would like to see. Kate Stewart have more stories where she's able to get out of the shadow of her um, father. Um, but, and I, did think, yeah. I thought her deadpan delivery did have its moment when she got to deliver the corner shops joke. <laughs> or the line to set up, they're in the corner shops. And her saying that extremely seriously uh, made it put me in the... Yeah, made the joke land for me. I think when we then cut to it, which made me think of um, it's where Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the bit about where in that you have to eat a packet of peanuts before you get teleported. Um, The idea, just the the mundane thing being necessary for these uh, interstellar events. And I do think the best use of of Kate Stewart in the episode was the moment where the Doctor first appears in the tunnels and is kind of doing a name roll call and says Kate Stewart and then does a double take and yet like Kate Stewart like in the way that that reflects the audience's reaction to Kate Stewart being in flux and like the Doctor (laughs) just having clearly not expected it's almost like the Doctor is self-aware of the fact that they're in a different era of the show and is resultingly confused by seeing Kate Stewart. (laughs) That was one of my first sort of big laughs of the episode, I think, um, yeah. I just like the moment at the end where she said, I really like this regeneration. And it was just nice and warm, and, and I hope I nice see more of it. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's setting yeah. it up, so we'll be seeing her again, I'm sure. Yeah. I reckon <laughs> Easter special, that's where you slide yeah. her in, I reckon. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, she could be in the centenary, but I feel like that's going to... My... my theory based on on very little is that the centenary is going to go for big law stuff and that obviously christmas not sorry not christmas new year's we kind of know what's about now and i reckon we could have a, an easter special that's very unity maybe mm. yeah How did and, you uh, mate, and speaking, Kate... of, speaking of units oh. maybe um, we'll get an explanation as to why nobody bothered to mention they had a spare tardis in a cupboard for 50 years <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I kind of love that i love the idea that the entire time john perk was there trying to fix his tardis there was actually another one just being hidden in a unit storage yeah, somewhere but um, nobody had written it down in the inventory benton probably lost the inventory <laughs> <laughs> You can just picture the scene where he comes out, he's smoking TARDIS and spearhead from space and just goes, yeah, right, sod it, I'll take the spare. <laughs> it's that thing where, like, the Doctor Who is so tied up in the history of Earth that you just think about certain periods of Earth history, like how many TARDISes, how many of the same TARDIS were on Earth, like, in the same country at the same time, like, you know, because <laughs> yeah. the, the 12th Doctor was there on Earth throughout the, like, you know, several decades teaching at Bristol and like um, there's all other examples of people just like there's just so many doctors around yeah. within a short space of time yeah. Well, yeah. you've got two in London probably... in 1966 haven't you on the same day so <laughs> even the fact that um, I can't remember who said it now but there's a thing about you know the idea that um, when the John's sim master did the thing where he turned everyone to look like um, the master that like you know at that point Missy was on earth like trapped in the box and also I think I can't remember how many years it is but like Sasha Duan's master is supposed to have been like pretending to be this like I just love the idea that there's lots of other masters doing their own little yeah. plots around earth but just suddenly whatever they're in the middle of like everybody turns to the face of like 
another incarnation and we're like oh i've just got to, i guess I'll just wait <laughs> until this is over like i know this just you know amuses me <laughs> And I think I haven't. I just want to do a bit more singing the praises of Swarm and Azure because they, yes, I, I definitely. would call them yeah. the best new villains of New Doctor Who. I love of, of, since two thousand and five. I just didn't. They're, they're completely. I'm so glad. I mean, I, I joked earlier that ages ago that I thought it might end with uh, them turning into CGI recreations of Roger Delgado and Kato Mara in the final <laughs> scene. They could have regenerated into that. And I'm really glad they didn't because they're their own things. And I'm sure we've not seen the last of them. They're so good. She, um, um, Azure got a bit more front, front grounded, foregrounded this week. And there was some wonderful yeah. lines where she sounded a bit like Patricia Quinn, you know, um, Bellage from Dragonfire. It seems you're unable to tear yourself away. Um, I can't. Um, that's that, me. Obviously that not scene, being able yeah. to do that. Point. I would say that scene between yeah. the Doctor and Azure was really yeah. pivotal to the whole episode and was full of menace and yeah. and threat. And, it was absolutely yeah. brilliantly played. Yeah, yeah. This, and, and, and Jodie's Doctor is so innocent and sort of had this has a childlike side and and being confronted by this person saying, "But death is good." It's just that was fantastic. Yeah. And, and I think this, as this topic has been brought up, I feel like. Not, not to put too much of a down on it, but I feel like I would like to slightly disagree about Swarm and Azure because while I do think there's some there's some great production design going on there, there's definitely some good acting. On the whole, I've been felt like they've not quite lived up to their potential, and um, like certainly in, in this episode, I found you know once we had the division as the creators of a flux, I found that sort of more compelling as main villains, I and mean, then this episode was so focused on you know the Centauran threat. I kind of, it feels like, it felt like it was going to be their story as lead villains, and yet in almost every episode, they've kind of been second fiddle. And I think, um, I, again, I was watching Doctor Who um, last night with with friends, and um, it was um, Molly Marsh who pointed out the fact that there's not really any sort of narrative reason for why Swarm and Azura are two characters. And as soon as she said that, I think that kind of crystallised a lot of my issues with it, and that I feel like mm. I struggled to see... Yeah, I just, I don't know if they've been made distinct enough from each other. And also it's hard to think of any scene where it necessitates there being two of them other than giving slightly, you know, giving the opportunity to talk to each other about plot stuff. And yeah, I wasn't, I also wasn't completely sold on Azure's um, villain monologue to the Doctor in this episode, I must admit. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I do think there's something there. And if they did return, I definitely wouldn't, be against it you know um it'd be interesting to see because i still feel like there is a lot of questions about them and their relationship to to time and even what what time is i'm quite you know there's brought up interesting things but i don't know whether that it will be returned to now whether that is the intention it kind of feels like maybe that is a done story for them um I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I take your points, but yeah, I, I did. Just, I just really like the aesthetic of them and the way that they they um, that they they balance and they're slightly different tone from each other. Uh, but um, I'm fascinated by the way that uh, it's been made pretty clear that they can they can unglitterify what they mm. have glitterified. So that does mean Tectaeon's still in play for the anniversary. For the grand finale and for Jodie's exit story, I am—I can imagine her being reconstituted. Um, that could be interesting. And, I didn't think yeah. of that, and that is a good point, actually. Yeah. Um, as they, and I know she's she's was it um, as yours says as, as she's being dissolved by time. She says ascension, and and we don't know whether that is just that is just her word for death, 
or whether they are actually going off to some other plane that then yeah. you have too you have too many trans-dimensional planes at the end of the somebody's got to have their feet on the ground i think maybe it is just for me that thing but i felt like almost every other villain i was sort of more interested in it like certainly tech to you i found really fascinating because i think they've got we're, we're, we're sort of being told a lot that swarm and azure have this personal connection to the doctor because um, she imprisoned them in the past and yeah I think we don't necessarily feel the personal element of that whereas with Tech Team and Doctor we definitely you know it's kind of that show don't tell him you know we, we know the personal connection we really feel it because it's so sort of innate whereas it's while I do see that it's there with Swarm and Azure I do think um, Swarm in particular has quite good chemistry um, with the Doctor in it but, but does show that I still don't completely invest in the yeah I think it's the, and with me it's the voice I think as well the voice just clicks and if it clicks, yeah I'd agree you know I mean? like yeah. I don't have any criticisms of the performance especially yeah, 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 no, the, 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 yeah, the costume fun. and appearance I do completely agree it's, it's fantastic so I think it's memorable um you know they're both ever so suave suave <laughs> is the word for them and I like I like I, I prefer a sinister villain to a ranting maniac villain villain mm-hmm. villain villain any day uh that that's that's more up my street uh and murray uh, well sagan sorry sagan yeah. and was doing some fantastic work with, uh behind them I, and i felt he was really mirror he was following the cadence of their voices and their performance in the music that it, you get this low swell when when they're speaking uh which uh, which just clicked for me I mean, I think for me, Swarm and Azua were agents of chaos. You know, they were not necessarily the plot. They were yeah. just um, driving the plot forward. It's it's very much um, the Joker in The Dark Knight. You know, if you go into The Dark Knight thinking that film is about the Joker and Batman, it's not. It's about Batman and Two-Face. The Joker just happens to be there doing things that drive the plot along. And Swarm and Azua felt very much like that for me. They were, you know... It, the flux was done by division. Um, the Sontarans had the plot, but Swarm and Azure were there um, doing their bit. Um, in terms of performance, absolutely, I think Sam Spruill really stood out as Swarm. Um, and I think the balance between his sort of cool calmness and Azure's stillness and deadliness was, you know, very much yin and yang. You know, both the same and different. At the same time, I'm really glad as you. I got that scene with the Doctor in the Vanquishers because up until that point, it had been very much Swarm, and she was very much the sidekick. So yeah, to have yeah. her have that moment where she is the one that's going to explain the plot. Because if it wasn't, you know what would happen? We would have had the complaint that the Doctor is sat there being mansplained at again for the exposition. So if if for no other reason than to stop that complaint coming in, I was really glad um, to have that scene with Azua. Um, but in terms of villains, they were absolutely fantastic. Um, and again, you know, you think of the aesthetic, those actors have had to perform through that makeup. They've had the, you know, heavy prosthetics and they've still come out with um, a performance that is both chilling and engaging and mesmerizing and and all the rest of it so so hats off for them i don't think i would like to see them come back i think you know we've got we've had flux we've had six episodes of flux and it was very much swarming as your story for all that it wasn't about them it was their story 
if we see them come back at Easter or if we see them come back in the centenary, then it's just more flux, really. I want those specials to be special yeah, and yeah, yeah. separate. You know, I want me Daleks <laughs> special. I want centenary special with the master. If it's um, unit at, at Easter, then that's what I want. I don't want to see necessarily these people come back and just be, you know, the re- flux part two or the sequel to reflux yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I, think, I think that is a good point i think you know flux was pitched as this six episode one and done story and while inevitably yeah. elements of it like dan are going to continue over i think you're right actually to say that yeah flux yeah. is done and we don't want to bring too much of that back because it just then kind of feels like you're sort of cheating by ending so yeah and yeah, now the doctor's got the, the pocket watch. That was the thing where she, Azure, opened the pocket watch in front of the doctor, and then, but, but, but it, and then it just took them all to being stood in front of the house instead of having the full. Whereas previously, whenever a pocket watch has been opened, the doctor's the person's pass has immediately leapt out of it. Like, yeah, and, and, and my partner was watching and was like, "Why hasn't that just happened then? She's opened the watch. The watch has been opened. Well, that's not how watches those pocket watches work, is it?" But um, I took it as them because because of where they were, they had the power to to turn that bursting out thing into the house metaphor as an intermediary stage. That the doctor yeah. could, had the power to, or that they had the power to deny the doctor going on to. But yeah, it's different enough circumstances that I think you can sort of allow it. And like certainly, it wasn't an issue for me because even just the context of the fact that it's not like her entire time or consciousness it's just some of her memories yeah. so it's a very different setup yeah good point that's the way i read it was that it's you know when we've seen that in the past it has been the entire personality mm. that's been removed this is just a, a section of memory so essentially the fob watch is a literal and metaphorical memory palace for the doctor yeah. now and i did love them make they would make the doctor walk in and get them back and she would have to do it. I loved that. Yeah, I do wonder if we're looking at a centenary special that is going to literally, for whatever plot reason, end up with her having to explore that house, you know, possibly with others, as a way to kind of do lots of, maybe not cameos, but just to really tie it into the history of Doctor Who and also the, the prehistory of Doctor Who that Chibnall obviously enjoys playing with. Um... Hmm. I think yeah, the house is right. Yeah, the house is a physical space for memories. I think is quite interesting, mm. and obviously and there is something. <laughs> I was going to say there is something very long narrow about it, though. The oh, sorry, it's it's house. To <laughs> it. Like again, I was watching it with a bunch of Doctor Who fans, and all of, when that house appeared, we were just like long narrow, long narrow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's probably a better guess than in this house where we've just instantly said Castle Duckula. <laughs> now that I'd watch that special, yeah. Oh, you'll yeah. get it. <laughs> Coming back to to Swarm and Azula, um, there has been a bit of a I don't want to say complaint. That's not the right word, but a, a, a comment that um, you know the the defeat of Swarm and Azula was a little bit too easy. Um, you know, I reached out on Twitter um, this morning just to get a few more opinions, and and Jason Thompson has said, you know, it seemed very clumsy in places, swarming as you, I think, they've won and time just goes, nah, you've messed it up and zaps them within a minute of first showing up. Um, was it a, uh, a sentiment echoed by I know the Zarbi, who said it was a very Blofeld thing to do. So, how do you guys feel about 
you know, the resolution to that, how Swarm and Azure were eventually defeated? Yeah, I think um, the word that comes up there is clumsiness. I do think there is a sense to Chimnal scripts that they really take you on a great ride, and this year at least, um, and have been very enjoyable and fun, but it's not sort of ever the most tightly plotted things. And, but, and I'm okay with that, but yeah, I think the word clumsiness could probably apply to a lot of um, Chibnall's writing, um, for better or for worse. And then, yeah, I think I would say that Swarm and Azure's defeat did feel a bit easy, but it kind of came into the fact that obviously what we didn't realise at the start of the series and that we kind of knew by the time we got to this episode is that actually they're not our main villains. You know, the, the mm. flux, the big event thing that's kind of the, the main threat in some ways is, you know, being created by something completely separate from Swarm and Azure. And then the other big threat, you know, the, the Earth threat of the Santarans is also separate. So I, I think it can be forgiven given how many other big threats and things to deal <laughs> with. And it was obviously they're kind of there to see, seed and needle that law set up stuff and get into the doctor's head and be more of a um an enemy that emotionally affects the doctor in a way that um maybe not as much as tectoon but they, you know in a way that the Santarans and the grand serpent don't really have any impacts on the doctor sort of psychologically um so yeah i'm, I'm not too fussed about them being dispatched fairly easily but i do think it's fair to say that there's some slightly clumsy plotting going on with it yeah yeah, time always wins. This is what it all is coming down to, isn't it, I think? <laughs> yeah, I'll be interested to see whether the fact that time was the one that got to give these sort of ominous foreshadowings of, oh, the Doctor's going to die soon, means that time will come into play again somehow, because I feel like the existence of time as, you know, the god of Swarm and Azure and this kind of not quite physical, but certainly more physical than we might have previously thought the concept of time in the Doctor Universe might have been, how that will manifest and whether we'll get to see more of that, because I think it's clear that Chibnall has some some interesting ideas, um, and I do think there is a, a, a sense, as we're getting this far, you know, this close to the end of his era, is he ever going to have enough time to say all the interesting things he probably has to say about these things, and I, I hope, we, I'm sure we've got in the more episodes to come some of that, hopefully. I would I would like to counter the clumsy element. I would say, um, and again, going back to what I said about Chibnall is a lot more interested in the journey than the destination. I would say it's simple rather than clumsy. It's 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 almost as if there's a sort of Occam's razor thinking about Chibnall, which is the the easiest, simplest solution is the best one. So it, you know, rather than having some sort of like the Doctor has to. You know, put together the key to time to defeat mm. um, swarming as you are. The simplest way out of this is just for time to defeat them. You know, that's, that's like, how it felt more to me. And uh, things like the, the Dalek being defeated with a microwave that time. Yeah, it, it's that kind of. It yeah, I like that. Really hard yeah. back to classic Doctor Who, where often you know you, you defeat the Cybermen in the invasion by deflecting their one single homing beacon. That's the only little thing that they had to get to come find <laughs> the Earth. With. It's like, oh no, we can't find this exact one beacon, even though we're just above the Earth. We'll have to cancel our 
our plans. It's not having something like that anyway. Yeah. But you know, you know what I mean. Yeah. Often invasion, alien invasions that can be defeated with uh, one simple fact from the GCSE science. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not that that's. I think that's probably before. why I like the microwave thing. It's probably only, <laughs> yeah. That's not. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't, that's not applicable to swarming as well. But it's but it's the same. Maybe that's yeah. coming from the same thing. Or like um, what's his face, cyber um, cyber maniac getting uh, getting mastered with the uh, the TCE. Or I suppose maybe sort the of different whiplash, hot whiplash moment you get. Whereas with the, in a Moffat story, it would all be operatic, and, and Russell Moffat and Russell T Davis both would have given us huge operatic endings for characters like that. Um, well, yeah, RTD would have turned the Doctor into Jesus, and that's how we would have stopped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose oh, that is actually the, the interesting thing is that, um, yeah, I think maybe the difference is because time was not a figure we had set up as much. Mm. That's maybe the difference between this and say. The mass, you know, if, if we're doing that time is almost like a, a, a villain and they're the big villain and Swarmers are actually quite insignificant in relation to them, so they've kind of just got rid of them. I think that works as a beat in the same way the master um, mi miniaturizing a shad really works as a beat as just like, oh, you thought you were the villain. Hang on, I'm here and I'm a real villain. Um, but I think because we've not got the previous knowledge of time, maybe that's why it didn't quite land for me. And maybe looking back on it, if we do get more for time, more more time with time yeah um, <laughs> then it might land a bit better um yeah i'll, I'll... to the time monster i can't remember it's all a blur but i think it was pretty similar On, only time will tell um... <laughs> hey. it always does yeah <laughs> i feel sorry for claire uh, didn't get back to see the end of series season five. She, 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 <laughs> she must have been enjoying them. I think, I think she was halfway through the Ice Warriors. Ice Warriors yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, it was probably a good time to bow out then. <laughs> it's all downhill after that. Yeah. yeah she's, she's got our trap one podcast to listen to now, Peter. Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah she, now, now, she could just watch them on DVD now. Admittedly, she might miss a, a few, but she's she's got through. You know, she's got a couple extras, but we won't have seen. Got the so. animation show. And is is this whole timeless child thing? The Doctor's got these huge parts of her, parts of her past missing. I do wonder if Jimmy was inspired by missing episodes, because <laughs> like, that's what's really inside that pocket watch. Dalek master plan. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> that, that'd be great. Like, screw yeah. a sentry special. She just opens the pocket watch and we're just like, oh, it's it's Marco Popolo. Uh, <laughs> imagine if that came up on screen. The, the, the absolute twists of the BBC Centenary special is that we just get to watch. They've just cleared out you know, three hours in the schedule for Marco Polo. Um, <laughs> well, there's a prediction. You heard it on Trap One first. <laughs> So, is there anything, anything we've missed here? Because <laughs> this I'm episode sure has covered lots. a hell of a lot, hasn't it? So. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. I think the only thing that we haven't talked about really is the Grand Serpent. Oh, him! <laughs> yes! <laughs> it's the other villain. The other, yeah. other, other villain. Other villain. Um, I think... Fine. <laughs> right. A very, very good performance, I think. Mm, you know, yeah, I, I do like... find him genuinely villainous yeah um, i loved the gray streak in his hair i thought mm. that was quite cool <laughs> craig parkinson doing another really good job of a sort of undercover villain you know yeah. someone and in I the background it's, just it's wheedling the way in yeah i think it's cool how he's like because i've enjoyed him in these last two episodes and yet when he was in episode three i think i was just 
I was like, oh, that's it. That's that's his part yeah. in the series. He's yeah. done. And so hmm. it's really interesting how he's been. And in this, much the same way as, you know, when we had the end of episode two, I was like, oh, so that's what the Sontarans do in this series. And then lo and behold, load more Sontarans. So, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's it's good stuff. And I'm, I, I enjoyed the fact that he came back and I enjoyed we got to do it. Because I think in episode three, he did play a slightly generic type of, you know, th- th- those scenes where he's like, oh, cancel the recording and then making shady deals. I don't think there was anything in those scenes that wasn't very sort of conventional of what you'd expect from those kind of things. So it was nice to get to see his character do a lot more interesting stuff um, in these episodes and become more than just a couple of scenes, you know. Hmm. And obviously now he's and even the fact stuck, that... on, stuck on a meteorite in yeah. space on his own. <laughs> Yeah. It, it felt very meddling monk just um, gets oh, yeah. stranded somewhere mm-hmm. um, you know, at the yeah. I'll get you for this doctor <laughs> yeah, should I did that? think for a moment that that's where we were going that <laughs> it was like the doctor said, oh, you, you've got two pulses I thought oh, yeah. oh. Right. what's he going to do now But um, again another a really fantastic scene of Jodie just you know being the person that's supposed mm. to be interrogated but actually you know sticking it to to another character um yeah that was good because even when he spent like says like i'm the one interrogating you he still then because of his ego has to answer her question and be like yeah it was a beloved ruler like he he can't help himself and that's <laughs> yeah. a great example of one of those scenes where the doctor is just so clever just through talking yeah whoa ego klaxon <laughs> <laughs> yeah how wise it is to wind up your interrogator i'm not sure but the doctor always seems to to do well out of it so yeah I did see someone on Twitter saying, complaining that there was a major plot hole that we never found out which one of Dan's mates had a bigger TARDIS than the Doctor's. And I'm like, I really hope you were joking. And I really hope you knew that was a joke. Because <laughs> I thought that was a great reaction to coming into the TARDIS. Oh, yeah, my mate's got a bigger one. Like, yeah. Just, just really, uh, you know. It's just another example sarcastic. of you've always got to come up with a different way to do those TARDIS scenes. Otherwise, yeah, it gets very repetitive. Mm. And so I think that's, yeah, a good way of doing that. As good way as any. Can not look out of his depth when because he obviously is. <laughs> yeah, I really, and I think I said in the episode two trap one that I hadn't I hadn't clicked with him yet, and I and I really did at some point in episode three or four. Um, I stopped seeing John Bishop off the telly, and, yeah, and and started seeing the but the, the character called Dan had been created. Yeah, it took me a little while, but I got there. I think it was when he changed into the period clothing into his mm. Edwardian, and he's got his cap. I love yeah. his cap. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. that's the other note I've got written down. Is Dan's hat. just a shout out for dan you know going through the entire you know he gets out of you know the 1904 into the modern day that hat stays on and (laughs) he's away with it and yeah john bishop he's 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 done well he's you know i don't think he's acting as being quite up to the standard of everyone else's but i think that is no reflection on him i think that's more a reflection on how high the standard of um everyone else has been of geordie of Kevin McNally of Sam Spruill, everyone else has just really, really um, mm. hit a higher level than him. But I, I said it to someone else on Twitter, I said he's, he's like Ringo, Ringo Starr. You yes, know, Ringo Starr is not the most technically gifted drummer, but Ringo Starr gets drumming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I I've loved Dan in this so much. I yeah. think well on it. And it's like, yeah, like there's been... Like, I think because there's been so many guest stars this year that have really, like, soaked up the charisma, even just to, like, keep on a level with that is impressive. And I think I definitely, um, 
I'll say it now that I prefer Dan to Graham, you know, yeah. in terms of our, like, all, all right, even after, like, the first couple episodes, I was there. And that's no slight on Bradley Walsh, who I, you oh. know, enjoy plenty of other things, but just John Bishop's so good. I've loved all the Scouse jokes as well. And even yeah. just the shooting in Liverpool, like, the shots in this episode of the Suntarans marching around, like, Liverpool One Shopping Centre and past um, the Beatles statues, I just... Oh, yeah, wow. it's perfect. Yeah. And basically, I mean, basically, he's got to be, he's been able to be uh, Ryan and um, mm. Bradley Walsh as well at the same time, hasn't he? Um, so he's sort of got both takes. Yeah, he, 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 he's so, yeah. That's it. That's it, because you, you look at him and you think he's a like-for-like replacement for, for Graham. You think, you know, middle-aged comedian coming in to play an older character, older companion, but they couldn't be more different. They couldn't be mm. poles apart. And it's, it's like you said, Brent, I can't imagine Graham and Ryan being in this story. No. I can't. I no. can't see how they would fit in. It's it's all about Dan, and yeah, yeah. I think it's if anything, it's it's a shame that we only get three more episodes now with Dan. Yeah. But he's never been anything less than likable. He's just yeah. yeah, you just like him, and you want to see him on screen. He's just yeah. just mm. fun. And he, 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 I think the thing I like is he could have gone a different way with it. He's been given this character who is Mister Nice Guy, who's you know working out in a a food bank, he hasn't got a job himself, he hasn't got soup in his cupboard, he's, you know, all about everyone else, all about making other people happy and that sort of thing. And he, he hasn't lost that sort of um, edge to him, you know, when when Carvinista breaks down his door, he's, he's all about, like, yeah, go back to your mum. And, you know, he's still <laughs> got that that little bit of a cut about him, you know, he's it could have been, again, it could have went a completely different way, but, you know, credit to John Bishop, he, he has got that character and he's nailed that character. And, yeah, I love him too. Right. Cool. So, have we have we finally finished? <laughs> I, th- I think we'll have to say yeah, yes. Otherwise, we might just go on forever. Yes. So. Yeah. Because next next time on Trap One, it's the season flux retrospective. <laughs> <laughs> In case, but it's not with any of us. So um, oh, I think we're not, letting everyone else have um have a go at um how yes. they thought about uh, this season of Doctor Who. So, um, yeah, thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. And let's hope that time isn't playing games with all of us. Um, so, um, where can we find you all? Bryn, where can we track you down? Yeah, um, so the best place, I would say, is um, Twitter, which would be at bmitchell underscore Twitter, T-W-I-T-R is how that is, yeah. Or just search Bryn Mitchell, and I, I'm usually the one that comes up. Um, I think if you see um, the if you find someone on Twitter called Brim Mitchell who's tweeting a lot about Doctor Who, that's probably me. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, where can we find you, Fraser? Um, you can find me skulking around street corners in the north of England. Um, other than that, I am on Twitter at at Felix Fraser. Um, you can find me on other Trap One podcasts discussing the Second Doctor. You can find me on. Hamster with a blunt pen knife as well, discussing, mm-hmm. um, amongst other things, the timeless children and ascension of the Cybermen with my good friends, Joe Ford and Simon Hart. Who? <laughs> <laughs> and how about you, Pete? Where can we track you down? Uh, yeah, I, I can be found on Twitter too, I'm afraid, as uh, prof underscore quite a mess. My, my handle is normally very Pete Lambert, except I recently changed it to Pebble Mill Fat One, and I might be keeping that now because I like that. 
and you can find me on Twitter too. I am at Cy underscore heart. And you can also have a listen to me and Pete in action on Maximum Power, our Blake 7 podcast. Plug, plug. There we go. That's my contractual obligation done to the other team. So thank you very much for having a listen to us talk about The Vanquishers. I hope you've enjoyed it. And join us again sometime soon for another episode of Trap One. Thanks and goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 I can hear the music, can you? <laughs> <laughs>